Jackson on the drive, kicks it out for Mann. Mann, three-pointer, bang! Oh, what a man! Magic down the middle, just what I thought, a hook shot at 12, good! Here's Michael at the foul line, a shot on Elo, good! The Bulls win! They win! Now that's a steal by Murr, underneath the DJ, right there! Going up over Bell, Paul away! What's going on, guys? Welcome to another post-game live here on Dime Dropper for the 2023 playoffs. And for this one, what a night of games to talk about. Uh, I didn't get to watch any of the Minnesota series or the Brooklyn Philly series. So those po- you know, analysis or recaps will have to wait. But we have two absolute bangers to talk about today, starting with the Lakers and the Grizzlies Game 4, and then Miami and Milwaukee Game 4. But before we get started, you already know the drill. For all things LA sports, there's only one place to go, and that is here on Dime Dropper, with specifically, of course, a focus on LA basketball. You already know the deal. Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, at Dime Dropper Pod, and of course, subscribe to the channel and hit the notification bell so you know every time I post a video, we live every night of these playoffs. Laker fans, tell me how you feeling tonight. 3-1 lead over the Teddy Bears. What a game. What a performance. Closing by LeBron James. Oh my goodness. 38 years young. It looked like he was pacing himself for this kind of thing. You know, LeBron, he has mastered his own game. He might not have the same burst he once had. Might not as, okay, exaggeration. He does not have the same burst he once had. He's obviously been declining. But, man, if that's declining, he's better than still some players at their peaks. I mean, because his feel for the game at this point, his understanding of what needs to be done from him, from his teammates, you know, what kind of defense he's going to see, all these things, he's just ahead of the game. You know, he's reached that level where mentally he's as confident as he can be. And, you know, this was kind of the Larry Bird approach to a game. You know, he has enough players with him now that he can kind of defer with his ball handling duties. And then when it comes the time to take over a game, he can be ready and conserve that energy. I always have been a little bit critical of LeBron that sometimes he feels like he needs to create every shot. And that's part of, you know goes to the stat conversation it goes to you know wanting to be given credit for stuff but then it also goes to sometimes he needs to do that much but with this Laker team I think he has shown first of all at his age you know it's a little different but he trusts D'Lo he trusts Austin Reeves you know with the ball and in this game I mean he was even trusting Dennis Schroeder with the ball a little too much but the point I'm trying to make is before we really get into the game is that LeBron came up big and you know we talk about LeBron as a Laker You know, he won his only championship inside of the bubble. He didn't win it in front of Laker fans. You know, a lot of my really close friends, they still, they say the same thing kind of similar that I uh, I say about Kawhi. But obviously, I'd say they show more love towards LeBron because he still got them a championship. But it's still kind of like that. Sometimes it still doesn't feel like he is truly a Clipper or a Laker or just, just we don't have those memories of them in front of those big sellout crowds of that kind, but... It really felt like tonight was one of those moments you'll look back on uh, as a Laker fan and LeBron's time as a Laker, you know, in front of the fans after 10 years of not being able to have a sold-out crowd, a game-tying layup, you know, to add to the list and long list 
of clutch shots that LeBron has hit in the playoffs, especially, you know, even though he had that shot against Orlando and a couple against the Wizards his first time around in the playoffs, and of course the game-winning layup in Game 5 against the Pistons in 07. It was mostly when he started winning chips. I mean, he started rolling out some game winners. Obviously, in 2018, hit two in a row. As I said, dude, I have, in my opinion, I have a PhD in Braun. I could, I could go on and on about his career and all these moments, but the point is he added to that long list in a Laker jersey. And so I think that was a big moment for him, and he did it to save Anthony Davis's ass. Now, Anthony Davis still made big plays on the defensive end like usual on the offensive glass. His, his best period of the game was actually in the overtime period, so he came up big when the Lakers needed him most. But if it wasn't for LeBron James closing out that game, um, I don't think that AD would be getting off easy tonight at all. He would be very criticized, and rightfully so. So that brings us to the game. You know, as far as Memphis, it really felt like it was there for the taking. John Morant, in my opinion, he played really well. I haven't seen his stats yet, but from the eye test, I'm not going to look at him yet. So, by the way, if you see me looking at just same drill as yesterday, and by the way, I understand that I'm a Laker channel, Clipper channel, like LA channel, but, you know, I still want to attract fans of other teams, and it would still be cool if you guys checked out what I say about other teams. So I timestamped every game, every series when I talked about it. Last night I talked about Warriors-Kings, um, Bucks, no, not, not Bucks, Warriors-Kings, Knicks-Cavs, and Hawks-Celtics, so check that out. Um, if you want, it doesn't even have 200 views, and all my videos have been getting 200 at least lately. So by tomorrow, it'll be at 200, but check that out. Um, but obviously, my analysis for those isn't as sharp as Lakers, Clippers. There's no, because there's no teams I watch every single, you know, I try to get every single game on besides Lakers and Clippers. And admittedly, as you Laker fans know that are subscribed to me, I haven't been as good this season about it because when I went to Qatar, it was just, it was a lot. And that, that feels like so long ago that I, I can't believe I went to Qatar this season. That was insane, but... I wasn't really watching Laker games with that same consistency. But then after they made the moves, I really started watching them again. Um, because I thought at some point, I thought I was like, look, this Laker team is cooked. Um, they're probably not going to trade Russ. It is what it is. But again, I'm looking at my phone when I look at the box scores because I don't want to get my computer too hot. It's been lagging. But let's talk about the game. I actually took notes for this one. So the start, I want to say, classic 7 o'clock start. Uh, throwing off the L.A. fans a little bit. Some empty seats in the beginning of the game. It did not have the same energy as the last game. Although, I, I think it was still louder than any Laker first-round game between 08 and 2013. Maybe, no, honestly, 07 and 2013. The only reason I mention 06 is because game six, games 3, 4, and 6 of the 2006 first round for the Lakers were pretty loud, um, sounded on TV. But as I said, the Laker fans got to kick up the ass by not making the playoffs for so long, and now they're excited and they're louder than they've been in terms of my time watching basketball in the first round, besides that 06. But they're probably louder than that, too. As I said, this is the loudest they've been in the first round since Shaq and Kobe. Um, but this was not quite as loud as the other night. There were some stretches of the game that were a little bit quieter, like, you know, kind of similar to the first round games with Kobe, where the Lakers fans just knew they were going to win. But it got really loud at the end, man. Second half, I mean, th that crowd really pushed it. And, you know, I think that gave, they gave them a boost. So Laker crowd, Knicks crowd, you guys did the job so far. Miami crowd even as well, who was pretty quiet in the play-in. They've done a good job of helping their team uh, get those wins. And when the game goes to overtime and you got a guy on your team that made the game-tying shot, the momentum is usually shifting that way. I was talking to my dad about it. We are watching the game. And I was like, does Memphis have the advantage here going into overtime because they got younger legs? Or do the Lakers have the advantage because they're at home? And the answer was the Lakers. But they also have the advantage because, in my opinion, they have the two best players in the court. However, you could argue that John Morant was the best player on the court in this game. But 
I got to give the spoils to LeBron. He closed, and I'm big on closing. You know what I'm saying? LeBron has a more versatile package at the end of a game. He's a bulldozer, and he's LeBron James. He's one of the greatest to ever do this. John Morant's a fantastic rising point guard, but there's levels to this shit. And, you know, Anthony Davis, overall in the series, though, you know, has still been pretty damn good. I mean, his defense is just amazing. His shot blocking numbers, you know, his rebounding. But games two and four, you know, offensively, he's been beyond timid. He's just been, I don't want to be harsh, but pretty pathetic. You know what I mean? It's like he can't be letting these guys like Desmond Bain just bully him like that. Like, where's the quickness on the moves? Where's your assertiveness? You know, where's the, I'm going to try to get deeper position down low. It just wasn't good enough from him. But the Lakers luckily still won the game 117 to 111. Um, the Grizz. You know, they've struggled to hit from the outside. And as I've said for two years now, and I noticed this when I watched them in the playoffs last year, and you can even go back to my recaps last year talking about them, when they're not hitting threes, they, and and Jaw's not getting whatever he wants at the rim, they are not that good. They have no plan B. And what I don't like is when John Morant, a lot of times when he's playing, they don't look at Jaron Jackson as a go-to guy. They just have him spacing the floor for Ja. And I think that when Jaron Jackson is a go-to guy, that adds an element of we can dump the ball down and maybe get a more high-percentage shot, something that maybe can get us to the line. I don't remember seeing many Jaron Jackson dump downs or him going one-on-one in this game. And I didn't see enough of that last year in the playoffs. And I remember being blown away his rookie season when I went to a game live against the Clippers and he was hitting jump hooks with both hands. I saw that early in this series. I I just don't think he was really, let's see, you know, he was 5 for 15 in this game. So maybe maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I got to go back and watch the film and maybe he was getting more dump downs. But I don't remember that much of it. And yeah, he didn't shoot the ball well. I mean, that's not good. 33%, 0 for 4 from deep, but 14 points, 14 boards for him still, and 5 blocks. I mean, his shot blocking and his rim protection is incredible. But I thought the Lakers, you know, their defensive energy to start the game was good. It's very clear what they were doing. I thought they were good at the point of attack. You know, AD was actually guarding Tillman in this game. LeBron was guarding Jaron Jackson more, which is weird because Jaron Jackson was dominating LeBron in games one and two when he got him down low. But I think the Lakers were doing it because they didn't want AD to get put in the pick and roll. Not because AD's bad defensively in the pick and roll. He's actually amazing in drop coverage. But I think it's because they wanted to have him as the backside rim protection. I think they didn't want him to get further dragged away from the paint because Ja, you have to respect his floater. And he ended the last game shooting the ball well from from three. So I think what the Lakers wanted to do was funnel him to the paint, but then pack the paint and then make him kick it out to usually Dylan Brooks or David Roddy. And Dylan Brooks continued to help the Clippers build the Intuit Dome with his bricks. I mean, I... DB, you know, DB at Oregon was a beast. He was a beast. Like, he had a great runner, floater. He was aggressive. He didn't play like this. Like, he was a wannabe Bill Lambeer type. Um, But he's just, oh, my goodness. Four for 11 from the field, one for seven from deep. The Lakers are going to let this guy shoot all day long, and they're loading up on Ja. They're loading up, and he's bricking everything but the Grizzlies they just they only one player on this team embraces the mid-range game one player his name is Desmond Bain and sometimes he doesn't go to win enough you know 12 threes he shot he shot 25 percent from three you want to know what he shot from two 11 for 17 
So, I'm sorry, 10 for 17. So, big difference. You know, sometimes you got to take those long twos. You know, that's why, that's the one thing where I say analytics has negatively affected this, this sport. Because the long two is considered such a bad shot because, in my opinion, when you can take a three or if you're spotting up, it definitely makes much more sense to be at the three and not at the long two range. If you're a Clipper fan, the Q Ross range. If you really know, you really know the Clippers. 18 feet away, basically. You know, where they used to spot up for the 80s and 90s to spread the floor. That's where power forward used to spot up, around 15 to 18 feet away from the basket. Because, like, they still tried to spread the floor back in the day sometimes, like in the 90s. You know what I'm saying? Like, these people motherfuckers act like spacing the floor is a unique concept just because the spacing is totally different. Like, all right, let's not, I hate that Stone Age garbage that people act like. But the point is, that range, that range is neglected when when you're in the pick and roll right and you're the ball handler you got to just take what the defense gives you okay and they're gonna funnel you to the mid-range because their people are uncomfortable today shooting that shot you know what i'm saying and obviously it's not a three and it's not a layup so in terms of efficiency you know what i'm saying it's you know lower percentage or whatever but you got to take what the defense gives you. And if you really are a shooter like a Desmond Bain, you should be able to shoot from everywhere on the court and not think about the analytics. You're just playing ball. And the Grizzlies, and part of that's the coaching staff. Part of that's Jenkins, who doesn't embrace the mid-range as a coach. And that, you know, you can see it in the way that they play. You can see it in the way that they play. But uh, let's, let's go back to my notes for a second. Yeah, I thought the Lakers' defense in the point of attack was pretty good in the first quarter. They were funneling shots out, but I thought that John Morant started the game well, you know, getting to the basket and still attacking when he could, still elevating the rim when he could. Um, AD, as good as he was blocking shots, I think he had, what, five blocks in this game? Let me check. Four blocks in this game. He wasn't exactly the presence that he was in the previous games, in my opinion. I don't know what that was. It was just his body language was just kind of off all game for me. Um, Vanderbilt, though, started out the game pretty well for the Lakers. Seven points, nice cut, a little rebounding, even hit a corner three. But the Grizz also started with energy. However, the Lakers closed the first quarter well. LeBron, big three, got the crowd going. And after one, they led 29-23. to As far as the second quarter, I thought that you saw some good defense from Troy Brown and Dennis Schroeder. Um, the Lakers were able to push the lead up to 14, 44-30. to the Grizzlies just could not hit shots from three. And at the rim, the Lakers were packing that paint. But they closed the second quarter on a 15-1 to run. And part of that was because D'Angelo Russell and Anthony Davis were not hitting shots. There was no aggression from AD. He was going up soft. Obviously, he has Jaron Jackson on him. But even when he had Desmond Bain on him, like the dude is not being aggressive. He's not working quickly enough. He gets the ball way too high. You know, Shaq was, oh no, Shaq was talking about it with Bam, but it applies to AD as well. You know, watching Carl Anthony Towns and Bam Adebayo and AD, you know, the reason why these guys are way, 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 way worse than Embiid and Jokic, forget all the skillful shit y'all be seeing. They catch the ball in better areas, especially Jokic. And Jokic is, like, you know, he's strong as shit. But these guys, I mean... A lot of it's just ceiling, positioning, you know, wanting to get down and dirty. And I think that they just get pushed out too easily. And somebody who also does, Julius Randle. It's absurd. Um, something that's definitely, when you watch older players, you notice. And that's why I always say, keep watching film of different times because you notice differences in the game. Um, I think that really helps us become more knowledgeable fans in the long run. But 
the Grizzlies, yeah, closed the second quarter on a 15-1 to run. I thought Ja, I mean, he was trying so hard. I really loved his, um, just his fight tonight. And Desmond Bain, he wasn't hitting his threes, but he was starting to get into the mid-range and having some success. I thought Austin Reeves was struggling a little bit on defense, but offensively, he was actually the Lakers' best player in the first half. He was hitting, hit a couple of mid-ranges, hit a three, getting to the rim, getting to the line, getting MVP chance. And LeBron was being, you know, passive. He was waiting. He was waiting for the right time. I could see his strategy. I think he had that sense, just being in the league for so long. He knew it was going to be a close game. Um, Bain, by the way, by the way, I exaggerated just now. He only had three points at halftime. So nothing there. But AD only had two points at halftime. Two points. That, that's inexcusable. And that's you're not going to get away with that against the, whatever team you're going to play in the next round, quite frankly. And you also wouldn't have been able to get away with it if Brandon Clark and Steven Adams were playing. And I'll tell you what. Brandon Clark... He's a massive loss, like just so massive. He's so athletic, and he was really good in the playoffs last year against the Wolves. And even the games that they won against the Warriors, just crashing the offensive glass and being a rim protector, amazing help side defense. Um, third quarter, you know, it, both teams got off to a much better offensive start. Um, LeBron James, I thought in the first half, his defense was on the ball, not very good. You know, you could see the Grizzlies were kind of going at him. He also just, their plan is to hide LeBron on weaker, like, you know, David Roddy's, the Dylan Brooks, just sagging off um, to conserve his energy. But I do think LeBron has done a good job of this, and I think he got better as the game went on. And I think he's actually had a pretty good defensive series overall. He's been much more engaged, and his effort level is much higher. Um, he's done an amazing job of, and I mentioned this the last game, when the you know the ball handlers for the Grizzlies are turning their back and driving to the cup, he's coming out of nowhere from the blind side to swat the shit out of them. And that's peak LeBron locked in, engaged in the half court. His timing, his anticipation, knowing when the shot's coming, when the layup's coming, and when he's not in the line of vision of the player with the ball so he can come and get those chase downs in the half court set. And a couple of huge charges. One, you know, John Morant and Anthony Davis... You know, when Tim Grover, I tweeted this, but when Tim Grover was talking about the players in today's NBA don't know how to land, and he was talking about the whole science of it all, the foundation and all that, AD and John Moran are prime examples of these guys that don't know how to land. Every single time they get off the ground, it seems like they fall down. In Jaw's case, he goes up so high. Um, but, yeah, I, you know what I need to do, man? I need to get some moderators again. My old moderators are, like, not here. So if anybody is trustworthy and is, says they're always in the live, talk, you know, message about being a moderator because I want the comments to be playing as I go. But like when I look at the comments, then I like get distracted from my analysis. And, you know, there's people listening to this the next day in the car. And by the way, shout out to all the people on the Spotify and Apple podcast that have been listening to me lately more. I feel like my, my numbers are going up. So really appreciate everybody. Um, let's go back to the game. Jog re-injured trying to break his fall. Uh, with that right hand, um, and AD, I mean, and far, as far as him, just really slow to move. There was one time where he got the ball against Desmond Bain in front of the three-point line. He would not, he was given the baseline. He would not spin over that left shoulder. He was taking hours to make a move, and then he lost the ball. Like, it was just so embarrassing, and you know, this is when LeBron came out of the game. And LeBron's been coming out of these games like in the third and first quarter around like the five-minute mark. Then AD gets his rest, and then they both, you know, finish the game together. But D'Lo, 
it was making some foolish plays in the third quarter. I mean, terrible transition defense. He still, you know, he started to get his shot going though. There was one take foul that was just atrocious right after um, bad transition defense. But LeBron and Austin Reeves were able to restore some order when they came back into the game. And Austin Reeves in this one struggled with foul trouble, and I thought he's had a tough night defensively. I think Austin's a good defender, but a lot of times he was guarding Jaw. He really struggled at the point of attack, and I think that made AD's job harder. And, um, you know, he was just taken to the basket a couple of times. He struggled to play D without fouling. It was a tougher game for Austin Reeves. Um, Rui Hachimura, you know, he has been incredible in this series. Uh, he didn't really have it going tonight shooting the ball. He was only two for nine from the field and one for four from three. But he did make a big three on a good LeBron pass in that third quarter. And, you know, one thing I felt that was interesting with Memphis's strategy is that they were starting to let Laker players turn the corner and not help on the drive. They were sticking to AD on the roll to try to keep him off the offensive glass and leaving dudes like Vando or like Dennis Schroeder open on the kickout. And those guys were open. Troy Brown's of the world. You know, but for the Lakers, you know, they weren't even hitting threes either. Um, in the game, they were 10 for 36, only 28%. But that was better than the 21% that Memphis shot. So a lot of bricks from three in the game. And that was the strategy of both teams to funnel certain things in that direction. I was shocked. You know, Den Dennis Schroeder, I'm sorry, uh, Austin Reeves missed a couple of floaters, you know, in the lane, turning that corner. But that's what I think got D'Lo going a little bit in that third was he was turning the corner and Jaron Jackson wasn't in drop coverage. He was staying attached to AD on the roll and he was just finishing. But you know, somebody who I've really grown to like, and by the way, you know, Stan Van Gundy keep, kept calling this out in commentary, but the Lakers are having a lot of success on a little double stagger screen. Well, that's what the stagger means, but like, and LeBron and guys turning the corner baseline and then finding guys on the kick or underneath for the uh, uh on a duck-in. But they kind of went away from that for some reason. And... Yeah, the Grizz were just letting the Lakers, Lakers turn the corner, but staying home. Um, I thought Ja, though, to end that third quarter was amazing, attacking the rim, amazing. And to end it, he had this insane left-handed dunk. And when AD went out of the game, you just knew that Ja was going to further try to attack the rim. Um, Shout-out to the Super Chat. Domo Genesis says, We need AD to be aggressive, even if he's missing. And Reeves and Hachimura have been our X-Factor this series. Shout-out to Domo Genesis. Super Chats are turned on. If you want to drop a dollar or a dime, anything is appreciated um, for sure. But the third quarter was won by the Memphis Teddy Bears. 31-27. to They took a two-point lead into the fourth. And the fourth was a better defensive quarter. Just 23-21 to 21 in favor of the Lakers. It was an insane game. And the Lakers, you know, they fell behind. I think it was by 8 points or 7 points. And D'Lo, when the Lakers needed him, you know, he had not really had a good game yet. Um, Big, two, back-to-back -back threes. Really good. And, you know, Dennis Schroeder <laughs> was playing like the whole fourth quarter in OT. And he was terrible. In this game, in my opinion, in the second half, offensively especially. Uh, defensively was fine, but offensively, he was making terrible reads in the pick and roll. He was passing up shots when he was in the lane. He was missing guys on the roll constantly. He was not looking up for extra swings. And he was making terrible, like, terrible passes in the pick and roll. It just felt like he was a turnover risk every time. And the reason why it was becoming an issue was because LeBron wanted to attack John in the pick and roll. You know, he was putting him in the action every single time. 
And I think that's part of why Luke Kennard's really not been getting that many minutes because LeBron's going to put him in the pick and roll every single time. Uh, he did that with Tyus Jones a bit too. But he's going to put Ja on the pick and roll every time. And by the way, I've noticed a step up from Ja defensively this year. I have. But still, he's not very good. He's better than Trey Young, especially with the fact that he can block shots and all that. But there was one time Troy Brown just took him right to the rack and overpowered him. Um, but Ja... You know, the thing is with him, is they want to put him in the action, and Dennis Schroeder was the guy he was guarding. So when Dennis was getting the ball and going downhill and making bad passes and bad reads, they weren't really getting the advantage that they wanted. And this one guy, this one guy, I got to give him a shout-out because he has put his name up in lights to me in this playoffs. The casual fan might not notice it, but Xavier Tillman is a very good NBA player. Very good NBA player. He has good touch around the basket. He's been sticking. I mean, look, I get, I get it. LeBron scored on him at the end for that shot. Uh, not an easy finish, I might add. But for the most part, he has kept LeBron in front of him every single step of the way. It's part of why the LeBron AD pick and roll hasn't worked as well. He moves his feet well. He's extremely strong. He makes pretty, pretty decent reads in four-on-three situations. He's good in the dunker spot. He makes extra effort plays. Uh, I mean, I think he's just been phenomenal in this series. I I'm so impressed with him. And I think that, you know, when he's a free agent, I don't know what his contract situation is, but he absolutely will be getting paid because he is a player. He is a player on both ends of the floor. And he does the little things as well. He's, like, he's like got that gritty Michigan State-like about him. Xavier Tillman. Yeah, I had to give him, I had to give him his props. Um, but, you know, in the fourth quarter, it wasn't really Ja that was doing his thing. It was Desmond Bain in the mid-range area um, coming off screens. He was fantastic. Big-time shot making. You finally got a Desmond Bain game. And I thought Austin Reeves was kind of struggling at that point of attack. Schroeder, as I said, struggling offensively. LeBron trying to get Ja in the action. But Dennis was the guy that he was guarding. So it didn't really create as many advantages as you would expect. AD was not doing shit offensively. It was crazy. I couldn't believe it. Actually, I could. Um, because we've seen this, we've, you know, we've seen this movie before. Shout out to the Super Chat. Phoenix plays E with Canadian dollars. Says New York versus Miami in round two is generational thug ball. Oh, I'd be afraid. I'd be a little, a little hesitant about how you use that language, my friend. But I'm just, I'm just kidding. Um, I know you're referring to the late 90s rivalry, but I don't know. They are pretty physical and play good D, but we're not going to be seeing that again. Not in Adam Silver's NBA. Um, where was I? So yeah, AD was just not doing anything. It was being extremely passive. Um, and when I thought the Lakers were in a little bit of trouble, and but I, I also want to say this: the Grizzlies were doing a good job of not really putting AD in the action as much. They were trying to put Vandos, Lebrons in the actions. Um, and I think they were still getting pretty good shots for the most part. Um, but yeah, one of the big things I thought that made the made it a little bit nervy for the Lakers was that D'Angelo Russell fouled out. You know, especially with the way he was hitting shots in that fourth quarter. It was a little bit nervy at that point in time. And then what a crazy finish. You know, there was a couple of amazing possessions where Tillman was keeping LeBron in front of him. And LeBron at that point had like 17 points. Like he was playing pretty efficiently, but he took a couple of questionable threes in the fourth. And he wasn't able to get by Xavier Tillman. And that play... Uh, and by the way, LeBron was taking some really good charges, I might add. Especially that one where Jaw went up so high and was just completely out of control. Got to give LeBron credit for sacrificing his body. Um, and also, 
doing a great job on the glass. I want to say, and I really, you guys are going to call me a hater for this, but I'm consistent. If you listen to me, I'm consistent. Giannis and LeBron, I'm not saying it's bad to rebound. Please don't get it twisted. But I'm looking at these games, right? And all of a sudden, these motherfuckers have 15 rebounds. And I'm like, have noticed like six of them. You know what that tells me? That a lot of them are uncontested and they're just coming to their hands playing catch. And that's not to take away from anybody. Somebody's got a rebound. But a lot of it's like anybody can get that rebound. The, the strategy in today's NBA is to get back in transition. I'm sorry, to get back on defense to prevent transition points, not really to crash the offensive glass. Now, Memphis is a team, and the Lakers also, that do crash the offensive glass. And I'm not saying that all of AD and Giannis's rebounds were uncontested, but I'm just saying that it's not the same as the past. And it's, you know, so when we're comparing stats, I'm only saying it for that reason. I'm not saying it to detract from their performances and their rebound numbers. I just don't think that in all eras, rebounding is a huge stat that is just not created equal. That's why you see all these guards rebounding too with, you know, the long misses and all that. That shouldn't be a hater comment for me to say that. It's not the same as Shaq's 20 and 20. That LeBron, by the way, but I, I got to give LeBron credit though. First 2020 game since Shaq in 04. That's big time. That's absolutely big time. But it's not the same. It's not the same. It's not the same as, the, you know, back in the day. It is what it is, though. You got a rebound, right? You got a rebound. And not all of them were just uncontested. LeBron still boxed out. He's still a very good rebounder. Don't get it twisted. But, man, two-point game. I'm sorry, tie game. What a finish to the game. Um, Jaron Jackson Jr. with the block. And Tillman did a good job of keeping LeBron on. I mean, the thing about LeBron is he can't just body Tillman. That's the thing. LeBron doesn't blow by you as much anymore, but he can still get you on his hip, on his shoulder, and he can shoulder and put his shoulder into your chest, ram into you, create that separation, and still get a layup. Tillman, though, you can't do that with. So he wasn't able to get a clear look, and then Jackson blocked uh, Rui on the pass. And then what a behind-the-back. It would have been one of the best game-winning assists in playoff history. John Morant behind-the-back pass um, to, I think it was Bain, to give the Grizzlies the lead. And then LeBron adding to his collection of clutch shots. I saw him catch the ball at the top, well drawn up. I don't know who drew it up, LeBron or Darvin Ham. Could have been either. But um, great rip-through. And, you know, I've always been critical of LeBron in terms of at the end of games, and I'm not, I'm, the, I'm not the only one that says this. I think it's true. That sometimes at the end of the games, he doesn't go to the basket for two reasons. One, he might not get the call, which we've seen a lot in the past. And two, the line, where oftentimes he'll go one for two. He has made his fair share of two for two from the line, but he's, you know, he, I think he ducks the line as well. And he's not great with the pull-up. So, but I'm really happy for him that he went right to the rim. A hard drive right. Jaron Jackson came for the weak side block. Look at that touch off the glass. High off the backboard. Take lessons, kids. Avoid the shot block. You got to have that soft touch off the glass over the top of the square. Beautiful finish by LeBron. Clutch by LeBron. And in overtime, an AD with the block to end regulation. And in overtime, thought the two best players on the court were for the Lakers, you know, the Grizz ran out of gas. John Morant attacking the rim, but I thought Rui and AD and... You know, these guys all did a good job of protecting the rim. I thought it was interesting that they went away from Vando considering his, what, he was six for nine, you know, two for five from three, and his defense was better at the point of attack. And they went with Schroeder, even though he was playing poorly. But we'll see if that comes to bite the Lakers in the ass in other rounds. But I thought that John Morant, you know, he was trying, but it's just too predictable. 
to me with Ja. Like, it's just he's going to attack the rim. And, listen, he's going to create a bunch of good shots from three. But if his teammates aren't hitting, then that's it. You've got to have Jaron Jackson be more of a go-to guy. And I just thought that the, the Grizzlies' shot profile is just not very good. They just keep chucking threes. LeBron's getting shots at the rim. He had a take on Jaron Jackson, too. You know, for him to be able to blow by Jaron Jackson at 38 years old in overtime is unbelievable. That's crazy. And AD started to get going, had like five points in the OT. So the Laker defense, the way they kind of pushed with that crowd, it was a huge win, and it was led by LeBron James, who just kind of had the control of that game. Oh, my God, I just accidentally deleted a note that I don't think uh, I was supposed to delete. No big deal. But, yeah, the Lakers win it. 117-111, to 111, take care of business, defend home court. Got to give a shout-out to the Laker fans who really, in my opinion, helped the Lakers cross the finish line in both games, really did their job of making the Staples Center feel like a tough place to play again. And I don't think it's been a fortress like that in the playoffs for the Lakers since, well, look, in 2008, they didn't lose a home game in the, in the Western Conference. I don't think that was a huge crowd thing, though. I watched the playoff games with my friend uh, Oceans. There wasn't a crazy crowd in 08. In the conference finals, it was good, but it wasn't like this. Um, it was just having Kobe and Powell. Uh, but I think it's, the, it's, you know, it's been a fortress for the first time since, like, early 2000s. Got to give the crowd, crowd credit for that. Let's read the stat lines for the game. Starting with the losing squad, Memphis, who only shot 40% from the field and 21% from three. I think one thing to watch as well was the offensive rebounds. Memphis in the first <coughs> apologies, Memphis in the first half was the better team on the offensive glass. We're leading in second chance points. And then the Lakers got a couple of them later in the game. LeBron and AD doing work on the offensive glass. The Grizzlies had 16 offensive rebounds to the Lakers, 13. Um, the Grizz also shot 12 more shots. But the Lakers shot 10 more free throws. The Grizz went nine deep. Santi Aldama played seven minutes. He had two points on one for two shooting. The only shot was a layup in transition against Austin Reeves. Tyus Jones, who's one of the best backup point guards in the league, to some of the best, I'd say after Brogdon, he's the second best. He only played nine minutes. And he's been struggling in that pick and roll, and it's partially because, you know, Jaw's playing such heavy minutes, and they don't want to have them both out there together for defensive purposes. Um, he only had two points on one-for-two shooting. So I'm still waiting for the Tyus game, but it might not be a Tyus game with Jaw playing so much. And then Luke Kennard, 14 minutes only, two for four from the field. Those are all threes, and he made them, obviously. But he was a minus 10, which was tied for the worst on the team. So maybe he was getting picked on defensively more than I saw. And then Roddy, 20 minutes. He was the highest, you know, played bench player. He was 3 for 10, 30%, 2 for 6 from 3. So the Lakers are going to funnel threes to him. He always only really done well in game two. Um, he had nine points and five boards. Uh, he was also a minus 10. Then the starters, who all played 41 minutes or more. They, see, here's the thing. If you're playing Dylan Brooks, as good of a defender as he is, and he, he's not a great defender. To, actually, no, he's he's a very good defender, but I think a lot of it's just he gets away with hacking too. Um, but, yeah, he's pretty good. Oh, I forgot about LeBron's N1. I should have mentioned that. I'm not going to forget that. LeBron got an N1 against Dylan Brooks to seal the game. I think that was fitting considering all the trash that DB has talked about him and LeBron's just taking it on the chin and just done his LeBron thing. Just stay quiet. Just kill him with your game. And the roar of the crowd. I don't know why, man. I don't know. The faces LeBron makes, I don't know why. It just looks kind of 
maybe I'm, I don't know, it looks kind of cringe to me. I don't know why. But, hey, man, you've got to let out that primal roar. Um, he earned it. He earned it. How about, I'm not saying it's cringy for him to roar. It's just the face that he makes. I don't know what it is, man. Um, Dylan Brooks, four for 11 from the field and one for seven from deep. He had 11 points, five rebounds, four assists. Um, the Lakers will let him shoot all day long. How about Xavier Tillman, though? 42 minutes played, 12 points, 8 rebounds, 6 assists. I think you saw him make some good reads in the short roll. Just a high IQ player. Um, Tom Izzo. 5 for 9 from the field for Xavier. Uh, for Jaron Jackson, as I mentioned, a double-double, 14 points, 14 boards. 5 blocks, which is amazing, but 4 turnovers. 5 for 15 from the field and 0 for 4 from deep. But he was 4 of 5 from the line. And then John Morant. 44 minutes. Wow, I didn't never mind then. Jaw didn't play as well as I thought. 19 points, 8 for 24 from the field. Jeez, 33%. He doesn't he's, he can't shoot threes well. I know he made him at the end of he just got hot at the end of game uh 3, but 1 for 6 from 3 and 2 for 4 from the line. Uh I want to say his hands affecting him cuz it, it definitely is, but I think he's still playing well enough. You know, I really do think he's still playing well enough. I think that you needed a little bit more from Jaron Jackson. And I also just think that the Lakers, when when there's, when there's no Steven Adams and, and Brandon Clark, I think they're just a better team. Like, I don't think there's any shame in the Grizzlies. I think they're just a little banged up, for real. But I just don't like the way they play basketball. But they're banged up. Um, there's no reason to make any crazy changes. But let's see if they got – No, I think they have some, some fight left in them. And I said Lakers in seven before the series. It's looking like Lakers in six, which a lot of Laker fans were picking. But um, we'll see if the Grizz can finish it off. In what's it called? Game five. Um, I'm sorry if they can prolong the series by winning game five. Um, Desmond Bain. 36 points, seven rebounds on 13 for 29 shooting, but three for 12 from deep. At least he made all his free throws seven for seven, but. He's not shooting well enough. Just not shooting well enough. I think he played really well, though. 47 minutes. I mean, that's a lot. But, dude, my views are going haywire. One second it says 90, and then the next it says, like, 45. That's weird. But uh, let's look at the Lakers now. Nine-man rotation for them. Malik Beasley. Nine minutes played. Three points. See, like now my, my numbers just jumped up to 86. Like, what the hell? But... Malik Beasley, I mean, he's been a tough guy to play. He doesn't play good defense. He's streaky as shit. For the most part, he's been bro broke, and I don't think he's playing with much confidence. Um, so his minutes have been very limited. The other guys, Troy Brown played 22 minutes, and I thought his defense was pretty good in this game. Six points, four rebounds on three for five shooting. He was 0 for 2 from three, but really good shot contest. He was moving his feet well. Um, I think he was playing hard, playing good D. Um, one, of his better, one of his better defensive games I've seen from him. Jared Vanderbilt, I can't believe he only played 20 minutes. 15 points and six boards. Ham clearly just doesn't like his lack of threat offensively, but I think he does a good job on like the offensive glass and shit. Three offensive rebounds for him. Six for nine from the field, 66%. And 40% from three, two for five. So good game from Vando. Um, and the Lakers were, but they were minus 18 in his minutes, so interesting. That was the worst plus minus of any Laker. I mean, that's why a single game plus minus is kind of horse shit. But... Rui Hachimura, 
7.6 boards on 2 for 9 shooting and 1 for 4 from deep. I still think he was a solid contributor to the win, though. Even though his stats may say that, I think he still was big down the stretch, just having a big body out there, some decent help defense moments, some shot contests, and he, his shots were big. His shots were big. Um, or his shot was big. His three, at least. And then Dennis Schroeder, 30 minutes played. He had 12 points on three for five shooting, but I don't think he had a good game, man. He was a plus 24, though. Best plus minus of any Laker. So, geez. If you saw something that I didn't see from Shooter, please let me know. Um, because he just looked so not confident out there. But his point of attack defense is always pretty solid. I will say that. D'Lo, 29 minutes played. Obviously struggled with foul trouble, but he played well in my opinion. His threes were huge and it shifted momentum. 17 points, 7 for 15 from the field, and 3 for 8 from deep. So, solid night from D'Lo. Um... Austin Reeves, 23 points, 4 rebounds, and 6 dimes on 7 for 16 shooting in 42 minutes of play. He was pretty good, and he continues to be very solid in the series. Um, 23 points, that was actually the most of any Laker in the game. So, got to give Austin Reeves credit. And 7 for 8 from the foul line. The Lakers turned the ball over 15 times. Nothing too crazy. Um, you got to give credit to Austin Reeves and the way he's been playing in this series. How about Anthony? Yeah, I guess we're at the final two. AD, 12 points, 11 boards, 4 for 13 from the field. At least he only shot 1-3. 4 for 6 on the foul line, 2 steals and 4 blocks. So he continues to be a presence down low, but he just needs to be much better than 13 shots only and 12 points. It's not good enough. That's 12 points in an overtime game. LeBron, 45 minutes played. That's a lot. 22 and 20 to go along with seven assists and only one turnover. Eight for 18 from the field. His three ball was completely off, though. One for seven from deep, but seven of 11 from two. 22 and 20. The first Laker to do that since in the playoffs since Shaq. Incredible by LeBron. The Lakers shoot 43.6% from the field and 28% from three. They take care of business and get a 3-1 lead going back to Memphis. Backs against the wall for the number two seed. And speaking of back against the wall, that lets us shift to the Milwaukee Bucks and the Miami Heat. And I watched this entire game, and let me tell you, it was a good one. The Milwaukee Bucks came out with that sense of desperation to start the game. Giannis was back. You've got to give credit to Giannis, man, playing through pain. Playing through injury. Consistently risking his body in the playoffs. We've seen it before when he won the championship. But Jimmy Butler. By the way, I didn't talk about Game 3. Game 3, obviously no Giannis. But the Heat took it to him, and Jimmy Butler sets the tone, but everybody else played so well for Miami. Duncan Robinson has been having a little bubble resurgence in this series. He was great in Game 3. Lowry was great in Game 3. We've seen him be great, you know, since that playing game against Atlanta that they lost. Caleb Martin had a double-double, like, and the Bucks weren't really hitting their three ball. And in this game, Jimmy Butler again starting out with a great first quarter. I think he had 17 or 19 points in the first quarter. He had 17 in the first quarter in game three, had like 19 in this one. And Jimmy Butler, I just love the way he attacks. I mean, he did shoot eight threes in this game, but he shows to all the people that say you need a three ball to be amazing as a scorer in this NBA, he proves that to be completely false. Because again, as I always say, nobody is gluing you 
to the three-point line. You know what I'm saying? You can catch the ball at the elbow in the mid-range area. You can post up, and you can make your move from there. You don't have to do it. Now, off the ball, it seems like they prefer to have Jimmy either at the dunker or sometimes spotting up for three. I think you got to be able to have a catch-and-shoot three. I think as a guard or a wing, you should be able to have a catch-and-shoot three. But even if you don't, if you spot up from 18 feet away, or in Jimmy's case, sometimes he just catches it and passes up the three and will just go one-on-one and get into a secondary action. But what I love about him is I think he has now hit his peak after 2021. So these last two years, he started a peak now. In 2021, he was playing more of a point-forward kind of role. He was getting a lot of triple-doubles. But when the playoffs came, he looked super uncomfortable scoring compared to what he did in the bubble. He wasn't shooting with confidence. He was passing up a lot of shots. His mid-range was off. His three was nowhere to be found. And he just had one move, hard drive right, and was not hitting his jumper. He was just not scoring. And after that, last season, I noticed a change in the way he kind of approached a couple of things. For one, his three-point shot is adjusted. He doesn't get much off lift off the ground when he shoots it now. And he does a little bit better from three. Teams still give him the three. That's the thing. They all give it to him. You know, and I think that's still the smart decision because he's really good turning the corner. He's got a great first step. But I think what has really changed from him, his patience has gotten so much better. His footwork, the way he uses up fakes, the way he pivots and turns and turns the corner around your body, um, the way he uses the glass, the way he can sometimes catch the ball around the basket. Right? Like he's actually posting up, you know, he has a turnaround over his left shoulder. I don't know about the right shoulder. I got to pay a little bit more attention. He went to it at one point trying to bank it in on the left side of the court and he got fouled. Um, But at least he has one turnaround. He can spin over either shoulder for a layup. And it's all about where he catches the ball. You know, I think he's so much improved off the ball. You know, he finds those dirty work points. He finds those just reading the defense and how they're guarding him getting over screens. He'll back cut. You know, he's intelligent in his movement. He shows you how you can get all those points without being a three-point shooter. And he's a solid mid-range shooter. They'll even go under the screen in the mid-range, but he'll use that like John Wall used to do. And that's why I always say, you don't always need a three when you know how to counter certain things. You know, when they go under the screen, just like Westbrook does in ways, he turns that corner. You get a little bit of a running start when the defender goes under because they're not attached to you. They're not on your hip. He does a good job with that. And when you just keep getting, you don't need to get the screen at the three-point line. You know what I'm saying? You don't need to. You can keep getting them to rescreen until you're getting it around 18 feet away, where now, if they go under the screen, you're more comfortable shooting that jump shot. Usually, a lot of times, they'll ice Jimmy Butler to his left or right, but he's shown a good ability to turn the corner and drive and finish and also make nice pocket passes to Bam, who Bam, oh my God, his offense is just so frustrating. I mean... He's not aggressive at all. They sag off him completely. He has stretches where he'll make that mid-range with consistency, but it's just there's no give me the ball. I don't know how this man averaged 20 points in the regular season. He does not give Jimmy Butler enough help, in my opinion, in the playoffs. He, he All his flaws come out in the playoffs, and it's a, it's a lack of aggression offensively. There was a time in the first half where Pat Connaughton was able to block him in the post. He was playing small. You got a body. Shaq was talking about it. He's not getting deep enough post position. As far as Milwaukee, though, they t- I was looking at it from their perspective because they're the ones that needed to win. They took it to the heat. 
You know what I'm saying? They were good on the offensive glass. Brooke Lopez was hitting the three, and they started out 7 for 14 from deep. Guys were hitting shots. You know, Grayson Allen, Brooke Lopez, who hadn't hit a three in the first three games, hit three in the first half. Giannis was getting to the basket in transition. He had a reverse dunk within the first four minutes of the game, which let me know he was fine. Um, but I still thought that he was a little reckless at times. And Giannis, you know, in terms of, like, his bag, he – He's showed more in that 2021 like finals than than he has shown after. I mean, he has no mid range with consistency at all. He doesn't really have any go to post moves except for barreling into people. I think he's a smart player in terms of like his reading of the game and his his vision, and he's a much improved passer each year. But I think he's great at sealing and getting post position and working for his points, attacking the offensive glass. You know, getting just like Jimmy Butler, getting those I want it more points, but. His skill in the half court is still suspect. Um, but Drew Holiday, you know, as great a defense as he plays, by the way. And, and mind you, Jimmy Butler's doing all this shit on Drew Holiday, on Giannis. You know, they're switching the pick and rolls. And Giannis, he's still doing a pretty good job against Jimmy Butler at times. But Jimmy's still scoring. You know, whether it be a step back mid-range he was getting over him or a couple pump fakes, pivots, you know, flipping the shot around him. I mean, Jimmy has shown, has shown such incredible shot making and just counters to what he's seen defensively against the elite of the elite. And Drew Holiday is one of those elite of the elite. And he's still making plays defensively, but offensively. And I love Drew Holiday. But he makes terrible decisions in terms of shot selection. He'll just come up and chuck a three within five or six seconds of the shot clock without passing it once. Those are terrible possessions. Those are what I call the shots that I, you know, one time I always say this story. Adam Keith from the Utah Jazz went to Stanford. He was my coach one time. And I pulled up for a three because they were sitting in a zone and they weren't paying attention. So I pulled up for three and he pulled me out of the game and he said, you just made your teammates run up the court to watch you brick a three. You're the point guard. You're supposed to be getting them involved. Never come up and just shoot a three. If John Stockton had done that, Coach Sloan would have pulled his ass out so quick. And from that moment on, I realized I don't fuck with no pass possessions. Unless you're wide, wide open and you're a really good shooter, not because if you miss, your teammates are just running up the court for you to do that bullshit. Get everybody involved. Get other guys' touches. Um, and Drew Holiday, some bad shots. Chris Middleton, you also didn't get enough from him. But Brooke Lopez was amazing. You know, his rim protection, his rebounding, his offensive, you know, his roll into the basket. A couple of times, I think it was like three times in the game where Giannis found him on a lob. And they were up for the majority of the game from, like, I want to say 7 to 12 points. They went into the half up by 7, 57 to 50. And in the third quarter, they took a 15-point lead. I thought they had them, even though Bam started to get going a little more in the third quarter. I think he had 8 points. But Drew Holiday and, and, and Chris Middleton started to get a little bit more going in the, in the third quarter. Chris Middleton, I think, had 6 points in the quarter. Drew Holiday with 7 uh, Giannis was making some good passes. Brooke Lopez just continued to play great, much better than Bam. You know, getting offensive rebounds, finishing around the rim, rolling to the basket well, picking and popping, just doing his job really well. And Pat Connaughton, I also thought he didn't have a good game shooting the ball, but defensively was making plays. Really good defense, strong, rebounding a bit, but you needed him to make some shots, honestly. And the Bucks, you know, for a team that shoots the three ball pretty well in the regular season. They haven't really been lights out from deep at all in these playoffs. 
from three in this game. Only shot 43% as a team, whereas the Heat shot 49% from the field and 40.6% from three. So the Heat, I saw a stat. They're like the best offensive rating in the playoffs. And um, they were the lowest scoring team in the league in the regular season. In the league. And they're leading the off, uh, playoffs in offensive rating. That's unbelievable. Part of it's obviously you know, no Giannis, but they, they've just gone hot from deep. They've just gone hot from they've just gotten hot from deep. But Eric Spolstra said that um, it started late, you know, after the All-Star break, they started hitting their stride from deep. So maybe it's not just coincidence or just rising in the playoffs. You know, they Eric Spolstra says they've been doing it. So I trust his word. But yeah, 25th out of 30 in offensive rating for Miami in the regular season, and they're number one in offensive rating in the playoffs, and they're going up against a team that was fourth in the league in defensive rating. Let me check three-point percentage. As for three-point percentage, the Milwaukee Bucks were 10th in the league. The Miami Heat were 27th. And in this series, it's been nothing like that. So, crazy. But the Bucks, it still felt like they had it. It still felt like they were almost at the finish line. They played an eight-man rotation with Bobby Portis, Pat Connaughton, and Joe Ingles. But Jimmy Butler had other plans. What I proceeded to see, I think it was a 21-point fourth quarter. One of the best playoff performances, and I don't throw these words around like that, of all time. All time. 56 points, only behind Donovan Mitchell's in the bubble, which, again, I think that deserves an asterisk. Just no fans. Elgin Baylor in 63. I'm sorry, 62, game five. And then Michael Jordan in game two of the 86 first round against Boston. Jimmy Buckets, 56 points. The way he took over the game, it was insane. Hitting the three ball to give them the lead. And Kyle Lowry, I have to give him credit as well, and Caleb Martin. Big plays in the fourth quarter. Caleb Martin, a transition layup, a contested corner long two over Giannis. Then immediately after, Kyle Lowry gets a steal. Jimmy Butler gets the dunk, and the crowd is just going nuts. And I think you can argue, you know, Charles mentioned it, but I think you can argue that Mike Budenholzer should have called more timeouts in that stretch because the Heat crowd was getting into it. And when they came off that timeout, Drew Holiday made a three to give the Bucks a two-point lead. But Jimmy, he was relentless, you know, with his threes, with his finishing, with him turning the corner on guys. It didn't matter who guarded him, the league's best, Drew Holiday, Giannis. When he got Chris Middleton on him, though, he was trying to get him in the pick and roll and just blow by his ass. And he got a couple of and ones. And there was a play where when Jimmy got the lead down to about five, I think it was 101 and 96, I knew in that moment, that they were in, the Bucks were in trouble, and they started to get really sloppy. You know, I think the Heat won this game more than the Bucks lost, but they got really sloppy. Giannis was missing shots around the rim. Drew Holiday was turning the ball over. He got stripped. Chris Middleton was turning the ball over, and you know, when we saw Giannis win the championship, he had some good closing moments. But a lot of it was Chris Middleton late in games. Giannis's game at the down the stretch is a little problematic. You know, it's a lot of bully ball barreling in, and when teams wall him off, 
He doesn't have many counters. He's not hitting shots from outside the paint, and that has limitations. And that's why you need a Chris Middleton or Drew Holiday to be bigger than what they were. And Jimmy Butler was just the best player on the court in this game. He started taking over. He hit a three, and then in transition on the next possession, the step back long two with his foot on the line to put them up. one I want to say it was, was it 105-102? I think it was. Insane. The place was bouncing. I couldn't believe what I was seeing there. It was a guy willing his team across the finish line. And then Giannis barreling to the rim. Great verticality by Bam. And then Jimmy goes to the line again. Here's the MVP chance from the crowd. One of the best playoff performances in NBA history. Maybe the best in Heat history, but I wouldn't say that. D-Wade had some insane performances in the 06 playoff run. Um, and then he had that game against Boston. I think it was game four of the 2010 first round. And then, of course, you got LeBron in game seven against the Spurs and game six against Boston. So it's in the conversation. You let me know in the comment. Was that the best playoff performance in Miami Heat history? Unreal the way he ended that game. The Miami Heat win it. Take a 3-1 lead over the number one seed in the best record of the league, Milwaukee Bucks. 119-114. to Look, it's tough for Milwaukee. You know, when you look at this game, you needed more from your stars at the end. You needed them to close. A lot of it's late game execution. It's going to come down to ISO ball or just executing. And I think the Giannis Brook Lopez pick and roll was working pretty well. That was getting them the best looks. And I'm surprised when Jimmy's guarding Giannis and Bam is guarding Lopez or vice versa. They were guarding, usually using Bam on Giannis, but there were times where Jimmy was guarding him. And I love the matchup, by the way, when they're them two are guarding each other. I don't think that they should. I think they should switch that pick and roll. I'm sorry. They should switch that pick and roll instead of Bam dropping because when you can switch it, I think Jimmy can hold his own against Lopez. I think so. But they were kind of being hesitant to at times, and it was getting Giannis some downhill creation and looks. But, whew, the Bucks are in trouble, man. The Bucks are in big trouble, getting reckless with the ball. But it was a lot of it was just Jimmy Butler was the best player on the court, and he was willing his team to victory. And with Giannis having missed basically three games, it really has been three games, you know, you went one and two in those games, and now you had a virtuoso performance. It just puts a lot of pressure on Giannis and the Bucks to win this game and for Giannis to be great right away. And granted, he was pretty great. He had a triple-double. His defense was really good. But you got to close. And there was a player that was better than you on the other side. And I consider Giannis the best player in the world. So, and I want to just say this too. And this is not to hate either on the good M on the NBA today. But whether it's Jokic, whether it's Giannis, whether it's Embiid, whoever it is, whoever you think is the best player in the NBA, this is the least good best player in the NBA of my life. Like LeBron and Kobe, they, for like Kobe's run from like 05 to 10, and then LeBron's run from. You know, 2012 to 2018, and even Kawhi and KD and Steph in 2019, and then LeBron again in 2020. After 2020, these, you know, who's been the best player in the world has been finally up for debate. Neither of them are better than Kobe and LeBron were, or KD and Kawhi were, or Steph uh, there. I mean, I think Steph last year, though, you can put in that conversation. If you want to say Steph was the best player in the league, you can say that. I said Giannis, but I'm starting to think maybe it was Steph. We'll see how Steph, if Steph can beat Sacramento. You know, we'll see. I may call him the best player in the world because he is Steph Curry, who I consider a top 12 player of all time. Probably 12th. But we'll see. I don't have a list. Um, let's read the lines. The Milwaukee Bucks 
you know, they had 16 offensive rebounds in this game, which was six, you know, plus seven in that department over the Heat. They shot 10 more shots as a result. The Heat shot five more free throws. Um, as I said, the Heat shot 49% and 40.6% from three. The Bucks 43% from the field and 32.5% from three. The Bucks turned the ball over 14 times. The Heat turned the ball over 15 times. Let's look at some team stats before we get into the individual. See if I notice anything big. Nothing huge. The Bucks had 24 points. Off of turnovers, the Heat had 17. Points in the paint, the Bucks dominated 54-40. to 40. They led by as many as 15, but they ended up losing the game. So let's read the lines for the Bucks. Bobby Portis only played 13 minutes. I think it's partially because Brooke Lopez was playing so well. And Bobby, who's had a really good series, five points, four boards on two for six shooting. Joe Ingles, three points, only shot once. It was a three and he made it. Pat Connaughton, 8.6 boards. You needed him to hit more threes. He shot well in the series until this game. Two for eight from the field for him, so just 25%, and one for six from deep. Just not good enough. But he did have six rebounds in the game and played some good defense. And then the starters, who all played 33 minutes or more. Grayson Allen, thought offensively was pretty quiet. Shot only six times, made two of them. Two of five from deep, eight points. Chris Middleton, you needed more. And now you're starting to see, you know, the Chris Middleton that just, he hasn't really looked like an all-star in these playoffs. But he looked, he's looked good, though, in this series. He really has. I mean, you know, shot 60% in the first game. Game two, he was all right shooting the ball, but I thought he played well overall. 57% from the field in game three. But then this one, four for 12 from the field for him. Two for five from deep, so he did shoot up from the three ball. 14 points, six rebounds, eight assists. He did make some good passes. Turned the ball over three times, but you need more than just four made shots. You do, because he's not really getting to the line like that. Only four free throw attempts, made all four, but he was their closer, main closer in that 2021 run. He has to be better in game five if they want to keep the series alive. Drew, let's go with Brooke Lopez. He was just amazing. In my opinion, the player of the game for them. And Brooke Lopez, you know, the way he's improved defensively is insane. Uh, he does a good job. He had times where, you know, he would step up and intimidate guys for the block, you know, to not go up because he would block the shot. And they would drop it off. And he would still, even sometimes when he jumped, be able to recover, you know, and guard two guys at once. And I think that's just an amazing skill to have to be able to, Take away two things, and that really helps your teammates. And, you know, he's got a big body. He knows how to use it well. He has good timing, and he knows angles well. And he's really, really improved each year with that. And he had 36 points and 11 rebounds, seven of them offensive rebounds. He shot 13 for 23 from the field, four for seven from deep, and was six for six on the line. It was insane. Um, Drew Holiday. 14.7 boards and four assists. Even though Jimmy Butler torched everybody, I still think he plays really good defense, but he has to take probably the biggest amount of responsibility for this loss, in my opinion, for any Bucks player. Six for 19 from the field, two for 11 from deep, and a lot of those were just silly shots. Notice he was four for eight from two, but two for 11 from deep. 
and a lot of those those one pass possessions I talked about, and he turned the ball over only one time actually, but then Giannis, twenty six points, ten rebounds, and thirteen assists, just making some really good passes, some solid reason to pick and roll, finding Brook Lopez on those lobs because guys are going to be ready for Giannis to drive. They're going to load up, um, and he'll just he just found Brook Lopez a couple times over the top. 12 for 22 for Giannis, only one three-point attempt, which I liked. So he shot really efficiently. Two for four from the line, only four free throws. And then six turnovers, though. As I said, a little sloppy with the ball, and it just didn't end well for him. For the Heat. Oh, oh, oh. They played a 10-man rotation. Got a little bit of Cody Zeller, who only played seven minutes, two points, one for two. Got a little bit of Haywood Highsmith, who I thought was actually putting a good effort. You know, going for loose balls, trying to rebound. He had three points and three boards in 14 minutes. Made one three. Max Struess only played 17 minutes. Teams will just go at him and put him in the pick and roll relentlessly. He had a donut shot once. Cody Martin. Actually, Kevin Love. 22 minutes only in this one. 6.7 boards, 2 for 5 from deep though, but he's been really good in this series for what was expected of him. Obviously so big in Game 1, good again in Game 3. He's done a great job of just stretching the defense out and being that pick-and-pop threat, and it's just hard to guard hard to guard pick-and-pops. you got guys like Jimmy Butler who are so good at turning the corner. But, yeah, Kevin Love, 6-7 and seven in Games 3 and 4, um, but he's, and 2 for 6 in both games as well at, in Miami. Caleb Martin, I thought he was just fantastic. What a job he does on the glass as well. 12 points, 9 rebounds. Huge plays in the fourth quarter. Huge. And he's been great in the series. I mean, game three was great. Game one, he was great. He's been awesome. Giving you exactly what you needed. Four for five from the field and two for three from deep for him. And then Kyle Lowry, really big defensive plays. Huge. And he's gone to the line as well. Six points, four boards, five assists. Well, he didn't get to the line in this game. Well, there was one time where he got fouled. I thought he was going to get free throws for it, but he didn't, I guess. And a big steal. He also got a block. He's been really good. And then Duncan Robinson. Where did this come from? Nine points, four boards. And in game three, there was even a time where he took Drew Holiday to the rack. I couldn't believe what I was seeing. Three for five from the field and three for four from deep for Dunk. So, wow, Heat getting production off that bench. 30 total points. While the Bucks only got 16. 14-point advantage for the Heat there, who have had a lack of depth, people have said all season. But Lowry off the bench, he's been proven to be good. And then the three starters, Gabe Vincent. I thought he had, you know, bad offensive possessions, but he also had some good offensive possessions. I thought that he did a good job of, you know, he's four shots. It was diverse. He had two threes, got to the basket one time, keeping the defense honest, and he was playing hard. Uh, 10 points for him, 8 assists. So as I said, he had some good reads on some driving kicks in the pick and roll. You'll take that. 4 for 13 from the field, though. 2 for 6 from deep. He also had 5 turnovers, so a third of the turnovers came from Vincent. Um, so Heat fans, if I have any, I don't think I have any except for Moises Kanyeka. Let, and actually, no, ZZ Visions as well. So I have two Heat fans. Let me know what you thought of Gabe Vincent. And then Bam added a Bayou. 15 points, 8 rebounds, 2 assists. I think he was better in the second half. But he's going to have to be much better to win this series. He's the perfect guy to throw at Giannis, but he's going to have to be better to close this out. You can't just expect Jimmy Butler to do that over and over. 6 for 16 for Bam. Um, 15 and 8. A block and a steal. And then Jimmy. Wow. I mean, we need to seriously reevaluate 
or evaluate where we put Jimmy Butler in terms of ranking him in the league. For me, he's I've been saying this for a while now. In 2021 was the only reason I said he wasn't. But he's a top 10 player in the league, man. He shows up when it matters. And he still does enough in the regular season to get his team to the playoffs. And he's an all-star every year. But he takes his game to another level. He does it because he doesn't rely on the three ball. He gets to the line. He gets to the basket. He has a mid-range game. He makes his game simple as opposed to so many guys who make it complicated. There's no reason why a guy who basically doesn't have a crazy face-up bag like that goes right very, very primarily gets that much gets that many buckets on the best defenders in the world because he finds other ways to score. He posts up. He seals deep when he gets a mismatch. When he gets a mismatch, he does not settle. He does not bail the defense out. He goes to the rim. He's a screener. He's really, in these last two years, I'm saying, this peak Jimmy diversified his scoring arsenal his you know how the different ways in which he scores it's a joy to watch I absolutely love it because he shows you even if you're not the best three-point shooter you can still get buckets in the playoffs against the best defenders in the world in an era that loves shooting threes give me Jimmy Butler every single day and the way I judge is it's the last two years that's what I always say it's the last two years playoffs and regular season combined for where I rank players there are not many players in the last this year and last year, regular season and playoffs combined, there are not 10 players you'll take over Jimmy Butler. No shot. Because he does it on both ends. And then I talk about he's not him not shooting threes. In this game, he also made the three because he was just feeling it. And dudes will go under the screen on him in the mid-range area. That's the crazy part. They'll go under the screen in the mid-range, and he still shows you how to counter everything. But he you've got to sometimes take in the risk when you, you're taking a risk when you go underneath him. Uh, the screens with him on the mid-range, but 56 points, 9 rebounds on 19 for 28 shooting, 3 for 8 from deep, 15 for 18 from the line. So getting to the line 18 times, his patience, his footwork, you know, it's amazing. His utilization of shot fakes, just waiting on the defender to bite, going around their body. I mean, he has become so amazing. I love watching him play. He's become one of the best Heat players of all time, even though it's only his fourth year with the team. Iconic moments in front of that American Airlines Arena crowd, and I'm still going to call it that because they've been changing their name too much. Huge win for the Heat. And now, I mean, look at this. The Bucks' backs are against the wall. They're the favorites to win the chip for many. They had the best record in the league, and they're down 3-1. They're going to have to try to make the Miami Heat the 14th team to blow a 3-1 lead. And I don't think they're gonna, because Jimmy Butler is just that good. I think the Heat will win this in six. If it goes to seven, the Bucks are winning. But I don't think that the Heat lose this. Jimmy Butler means business. But you never know. If the Bucks hit from three, though, and they play well to close the game, because I can see Bam fucking up, and they don't have Tyler Hero. And I don't know if Lowry, Vincent, and Caleb Martin and these guys can keep it up. But I don't see them losing three straight games. You need to win now. And let me ask the chat. If Giannis and the Bucks don't win this series, is that a blemish on Giannis for not winning a series he was expected to win? But he was injured. But he played in this game and he didn't win. It's just tough. It puts a lot of pressure on them, man. It really does. And you got to give credit to Miami. I mean, they have come to play. They have shown why they are a playoff team and why you, if you're the Celtics, you're happy you got the Hawks and not playing against Jimmy Butler again because holy fuck, this guy means business in the playoffs. And that's why he's one of my favorite players in the league and has been for a while. He's, he's, he takes it seriously. And I love watching him play. I love watching him do it in the different ways that he does it. 
the Bucks are in such trouble now. Oh my God, this season. I mean, it looks like a, it looked like a championship contending season. And you know who's the biggest winners here? Two teams: the Boston Celtics and the New York Knicks. Because if the Knicks, I don't think they're gonna blow the three-one lead either. The Lakers are up three-one now too. So, are any of them blowing a three-one lead? I don't think they are, but I have a weird feeling one of them will. The Suns too, but they're not blowing it. One of, I think one of these four teams is going to blow it. I really think one of them will. We're going to have the 14th 3-1 comeback this year. It'd be hilarious if it was the Lakers, but I don't think it's going to be. I don't see LeBron doing it. I think the Bucks are the most likely pick because of the number one seed and Giannis is a beast. But, oh, man, if they lose first round, how that t- turns, twists the tail, it opens up the Celtics and the Sixers from now being the Eastern Conference Finals. Sorry, Knicks fans, but it is. That would mean that the Sixers, if they can beat Boston, it's right there to go to the finals and win this damn thing. That Bucks Sixers series becomes that much more important if the Bucks, I'm sorry, that Celtics Sixers series becomes that much more important if the Bucks get knocked out. And every contender wants the Bucks to get knocked out. We'll see. It's going to be really interesting now. Man, the Heat. I can't believe it. What the Celtics? It's it's made for Banner 18 this year. But if you're the Lakers, do you have something to say about that? I don't think the Lakers can beat the Celtics, man, for real. The Grizzlies are not all that. We'll see if the Lakers can beat the next round, which is that game tomorrow because I can't wait. But that's it for me tonight, guys. We're going to go to the live subscribers waiting patiently in the chat. 80 people. We've had up to 95 in the chat tonight. Lakers play. You always know in the playoffs, it's going to be a big uh, night on Dime Dropper. All my Laker fans in the building. Shout out to everybody. Listen to a Clipper fan. Salute, my brothers. Let's go. Obviously, after tomorrow, live for what could be, oh, man, the last Clipper game of the season. I don't think I'm going to do a if – the, if the Clippers lose tomorrow, I'm not going to go live because I'm going to just do an end-of-the-season video on whatever. I think the next day or the day after. Um, I'll just do Locked on Clippers because I don't – Give a shit about game five. Everybody's going to want me to react to the season ending, not the game. So we'll do it a little different. But that's it for me tonight, guys. We'll see if I go live tomorrow. I will actually be, you know what I'll do, though? I'll do a live stream of me watching the game. How about that? So you can see my reaction during it under elimination. That'd be kind of cool. So uh, tap into that. Now we're going to go to the live subscribers waiting patiently in the chat. Super chats are turned on if you want to drop a dollar a dime. Hope you enjoyed this episode. Obviously, if you only wanted to listen to one game's analysis, the timestamp was there. You already know the deal. Peace. Have a great night or have a great rest of your day.